perhaps uh, I should say amen and uh, we can go home. I don't think I can add much to the Lord's Prayer. Sean, thank you very much for uh, sharing your uh, very obvious gifts with us. It's great to have you with us today. And uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Jacob and Esther didn't get a chance to meet them while they were here for their studies. Uh, it's been my privilege on uh, three different occasions to be on the campus of Scott College, where Jacob is the president, and to see really his leadership uh, throughout the continent of Africa, not just through the graduates, but through some of the other leadership initiatives uh, that Jacob and Esther work on. So it's a great privilege to have you back with us today. I want to encourage those of you who... Uh, want to hear more about Scott, to have a chance to, to talk with Jacob. Well, uh, I actually need to grab this. I want to read, uh, I want to open this morning by reading a quote. It's in the front of your uh, worship bulletin. It's from uh, Pulitzer Prize winning novelist Annie Dillard. She's uh, probably most noted for her novel, uh, The Pilgrims of Tinker Creek. This comes from a book, Teaching Stones to Talk. She writes the following. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. I don't know whether or not uh, Annie Dillard was writing that about the Lord's Prayer, but she certainly could have, because the more I study, the more persuaded I am that we are uh, very unaware of the powers we so blithely invoke when we pray these very revolutionary words. It is not unlike signing a contract that you have not read to pray a prayer that you don't understand. These are words of revolution that we have been taught and instructed to pray by Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Now this is... uh, the fourth sermon in this series, we opened by looking at the first two words, our and father. Our was a reminder that we're in this together, you and I. There is no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. And to say father is remarkably uh, to be reminded that through Christ we can be adopted into the family of God and we have been instructed by Christ to refer to the creator of heaven and earth as dad. We then, uh, in the second message, looked at heaven. And I suggested that heaven was uh, every bit as real as Chicago. I might say on this morning, every bit as real as Rio, but that's a very different topic. (laughs) I won't go there. It is more real than Chicago. It is better than we can possibly imagine. And it is more significant than anything you happen to be worried about at the moment. Not, by the way, because the streets are paved with gold, but because an infinite God reveals himself infinitely in heaven. And we need to live in light of the end of the story. Then last week we looked at the first of six petitions. 
hallowed be thy name, a bold, dangerous statement in which we're asking God to magnify himself. We now come to the second petition, thy kingdom come. And, and this is perhaps the most revolutionary, the most dangerous thing that we pray. And today I want us to look at and think about the kingdom of God. And as we prepare our hearts to come to this communion table, I have five points about the kingdom that I would like to make. The first one is essentially a definition. It's important to understand that the kingdom of God is the place where the king's rules are enforced. It is the domain where Christ's wishes, his agenda, his values are honored. It is the place where God rules without a rival. The Greek word here is basilia. It refers less to a geographic area than it does to some domain where God's wishes are are fully embraced. Point number two. Right now, uh, the kingdom of God, in one sense, is limited. But eventually, it will be everywhere. I say that the kingdom is limited. It, it, all this has to be carefully nuanced. We know from Christ's own words in Matthew 28 that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He is the king. Every square inch of everything belongs to him. But his effective will is not currently being fully embraced. There are lots and lots and lots of other kingdoms out there. You, for instance, have started your own, as have I. About the time we're two, we begin to set up our domain and seek to expand it as large as we can. We start to give orders. The world revolves around us. Me and mine and no are the words that we say. There are lots and lots of kingdoms out there. But one day... Everyone will fully and finally embrace the wishes, the will of our Heavenly Father and of Christ His Son and our King. Right now, that's only in heaven. But what we know from Scripture is that history is headed somewhere. The Jews... Uh, sort of unique in, the, in their day at the time of Christ and before that, had an understanding of time as being linear, not circular. It was linear, and history was headed somewhere. It had a definitive beginning, it had a purposeful middle, and it had a grand culmination. Now, it's not always possible for us to understand all the events that are happening, but they're not random. God is ultimately in control and we are headed towards a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right now the kingdom of God is limited, but eventually it will be everywhere. Point number three. The specifics of how the kingdom of God unfolds are very confusing. I... uh, when I graduated from Trinity in 85 and we moved to uh, the West Coast where I was a college pastor, one of the very first series I preached as a college pastor was on the Lord's Prayer. 
and I recently found those notes, and I was reading over them. And, and as you might uh, guess, uh, pastors are prone to sort of debrief the message, and I sort of filed these messages away with notes scribbled on them if I were to ever preach them again. So, you know, there, is, there, there are many different messages all involved in one message. There's the message you write, there's the message you actually preach, there's a very different message that people hear, and then there's the best message of all, which is the message the pastor gives in the car as he's leaving the church and thinking, this is what I should have said. Well, I tried to scribble those notes, you know, this illustration didn't work, it needs humor, shorten it, whatever. And when I got to this message, I simply had written on the top of it, no, <laughs> this didn't work. And that's because the kingdom of God is a pretty complicated topic. And it's complicated for a half dozen reasons at least. For starters, it's very shocking. I mean, I'm sure I'm not alone. But when I read the Sermon on the Mount, I, I generally respond by thinking, you've got to be kidding. Right? I mean, this is, you've got to be kidding. The blessed are the poor, the meek will inherit the earth. I'm to understand my unrighteous anger as being akin to murder, that lust is adultery. I'm supposed to forgive people over and over and over. You've got to be kidding. This will not work. So there's, there's part of the, the, the confusion about the kingdom of God is because it's just so radical. A second reason that the, the, the doctrine of the kingdom of God, the definition is simple, but that the doctrine is complicated is because it rolls out in a way that leads theologians to say things like, it's here now but not yet. If you, if you read through the Gospels, as we read a passage today, you'll find John the Baptist or Jesus saying things like, the kingdom of God is at hand. Or the kingdom of God is upon us. And then later on they'll say the kingdom of God is here. And then the kingdom of God is within you. But at the same time we're supposed to pray that the kingdom will come. And you sort of look at all these things. And there's a lot written about the kingdom of God. Those three words perhaps occur more often than any three words in order in in Scripture. It's everywhere. And when you look at all these things you go... Which is it? Is it coming? Is it here? Is it in me? Am I, am I waiting for it? And it's complicated. And it's a little bit easier to think about if we recognize, first of all, that somewhere between the, the baptism of Christ by John the Baptist in the River Jordan and that moment when we recognize that John the Baptist's disciples are actually now Christ followers, at some point in there, a huge historical divide is crossed. A big paradigm shift takes place in in God's unfolding of salvation. And we move from the kingdom of God approaching to the kingdom of God being here. But it's here introduced in a way that's almost viral. 
it, it, it's spreading, but it's spreading uh, sort of slowly. Think of it not unlike the Allied forces in uh, the South Pacific establishing a beachhead on an island. Once they established a beachhead, it was a foregone conclusion that they would take the island. But there were lots of battles, and there was push and pull, and you gain area and lose some of that same area as, as things unfolded. And the kingdom of God is unfolding like that in a fairly fluid and dynamic way. That makes it confusing. The third reason that it's confusing is because uh, the, the details about sort of the culmination and the grand arrival of the kingdom, right now it's rolling out very slowly as, as more people submit their life to Christ, right? Die to their own kingdom and turn things over to him and follow him. The kingdom is growing slowly, but we're told in Scripture that there will be a time when he who came as a baby returns as the king and as the judge. And there's, there's big events that happen, and he is going to establish his kingdom. But when you listen to people talk about the details surrounding the sort of when and how, it's obvious we do not have enough information to figure this out, nor does God want us to. It's pretty clear. He didn't tell us what we needed to do to figure out exactly how this was all going to unfold. We're expected to live lives of faith. And, and we wouldn't do well if we had that information. And so we are to live every day trying to be faithful followers of God. But that adds to the confusing language about the kingdom. And then the, the biggest one, perhaps, is the confusion that, that results as we try to figure out how our efforts, and in particular some human institutions, intersect with God's unfolding plan. And there's at least two big mistakes that we can make in this front. And the first one was made uh, for us, uh, show and tell, by the Jews. But very uh, understandably so. If, if you read through the Old Testament, you see that early on in the book of Genesis, God goes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and your descendants, and through your bloodline, I'm going to bless the entire world. And we see, remarkably, shockingly, that God takes this man, this, this little family, and blesses them, and they become a bigger family, and then they become a tribe, and then they become a nation, and eventually they become a superpower. We see how God has a very nationalistic agenda for the, the people of, of, of God, the Jews, that unfolds in the Old Testament. But then, of course, it collapses. After Solomon's death, uh, the kingdom divides. The northern tribes follow spiritual apostasy to their demise. The southern two tribes of Judah, they, they get taken over by the Babylonians and they're in exile. And during the time that they're in exile, the, the prophets of God keep going back to some of the promises that God is making, in particular to the promises that have been given to David in 2 Samuel, and says, there will always be someone who is sitting on the throne of David, and he is going to restore that kingdom. There will be an eternal king who is going to sit on the throne of David. And the prophets keep pointing to that, and they keep saying, well, a, a Messiah is coming. And so the Jews are waiting, very much expecting that this Messiah who's coming is going to be like the first king that united them, like David, an earthly ruler, a military leader. 
It doesn't happen. And, and as the Old Testament ends, the, the Jews, although they've returned from exile and they're back in Jerusalem and they've started to rebuild things, it's a pittance of what it had been. And, and they're not superpowers. They're old news. They're, they're has-beens. They're also-rans. And, and as they go through the 400 years of intertestamental history, it's sort of more the same. They're overrun by the Greeks and then they're overrun by the Romans. So when the New Testament begins and John the Baptist comes on the scene and he says, you need to repent and be baptized for the kingdom of God is upon us, everybody says, finally, at last, we've been waiting. We want the Messiah who is going to overthrow the Roman oppressors, who is going to defeat all our enemies, who's going to rebuild the temple in its glory. We're going back to the, to the glory years that we had under David and Solomon. That was God's promise to us. But of course, that was not Christ's agenda. He was very much the one that, that they were looking for. He was here to establish the kingdom of God. He is going to fulfill all the promises. He is the one who sits on the throne of David. But his agenda was remarkably different than the agenda that they expected. And, and you know, you hear what you want to hear. Had they, had they listened very carefully, perhaps it would have been a little bit clearer that his plans were not the plans they thought. In Luke chapter 4, shortly after he begins his public ministry, he heads in to uh, the temple, or heads into the synagogue. And there, says he returned to Galilee, I'm reading in verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread throughout the whole country. He taught in synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. This is out of Isaiah 61, a passage very famously about the kingdom of God. And he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He clearly makes the claim that he is the Messiah and that he has come to bring the kingdom but the kingdom that he is bringing looks very different than what they expected. And so throughout his, his work, we see Jesus sort of trying to fly under the radar. The, the expectations of what the Messiah looked like are not ones he's going to fulfill. So he tries to stay low even as he is introducing and teaching about the things of God and the kingdom of God. So one of the things we need to hear and understand is that many of us look for the kingdom of God to be rolled out through national agendas. And I think we have to very much limit those expectations. At the same time, there's a, a second mistake that people make. And that is to just sort of completely spiritualize the message of the gospel and to think that, that God doesn't care at all about Politics. And I'm here to say, 
Christ cares about everything. He cares about everything everywhere. It's all his. Everything matters. If politics is, is at its core how we're going to get along, how we're going to sort of move through life, which quickly becomes how people are going to be treated, especially the, the, the least, then Jesus cares passionately about politics. And he makes it very clear that if, if, if we're a Christ follower, we have to be about loving the unlovable and, and fighting injustice and championing the cause of the oppressed and, and, and feeding the hungry. That's his mission. Read Matthew 25. It's clear that, that we have to be about the things that Christ was about. He cares dearly and passionately for all things. So whatever else this, this uh, petition means, it clearly means that we are people who, who have got to be, uh, have our hearts broken by the things that break the heart of God. We are people who very much need to be seeking to live our life in ways that Christ lived his life. And everything matters. Jesus is not after land except the real estate that, that is in your chest. He is after your heart. He is after us to submit our wills to him and to adopt the rules of of heaven and and, and to, to do what we can to live and love and serve and give as he did. Point number five. The fifth thing that we need to understand is that we have got to be serving. This petition requires us to get in the game. Now please hear me. There is a sense in which what we are actually praying when we pray this petition, thy kingdom come, it is a request that God will show up fully and finally, that he will consummate his work, that Christ will return as king. And we have to recognize in big ways that that we cannot fulfill this agenda on our own. And in fact, those people who have deliberately set out to sort of bring the heaven to earth have generally been been horrible leaders. Those that have tried to establish utopian dynasties here on earth, in the 20th century it would be Hitler and Mao and Lenin and others, it's been disastrous. If God doesn't show up, We cannot do God's work. We have to be very clear about that. We are praying for God to send his kingdom. But if we are going to pray that prayer, we have got to be part of the solution. It is unthinkable that we would be praying something like the Lord's Prayer and not be passionately concerned with both the eternal destiny of our neighbor and the question of whether or not they can feed their kids. It all matters to God. And we are his plan. I want to read to you a passage that uh, just, I hadn't seen this before, just uh, in in some study I was doing, uh, really 
not related to this sermon at all, it jumped out at me for the first time. And it's a passage that we looked at last week. It's where God calls Moses uh, out of the burning bush and, uh, you know, and is commissioning him to lead his people out of captivity. This is the Lord uh, speaking to Moses. He says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land into a good and spacious land. Now I'm going to skip ahead uh, for the purpose of emphasis. So God says, I have heard them. I have come to rescue them. Then you go to verse 10. So now, Moses, go. I am sending you to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. God says, I have heard. I am going to do this. Two verses later, so Moses, go do it. Right? You can imagine that Moses, as he's walking away, is sort of rehearsing that conversation. Wait a minute. Didn't he say he was going to do this? How is it now that I'm going to the Pharaoh? That's because that's the way God is looking for the kingdom of God to expand. If we are praying this prayer, then, then we can only pray it if we're willing to say, I'm in. Count on me, right? I understand that the purpose of the church is to proclaim the good news and to engage in good works. That that's what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ. I've got to care about the things that God cares about. And so I want to see the the rules, the love, the grace, the mercy, the care that is on evident display in heaven. Even now I want to see those rules applying in my life and I want to do everything I can to see them spread. That's what we're praying when we pray, thy kingdom come. God, send your kingdom, and I'm in, and I'm going to do what I can. So what does that look like for you? I mean, what, what do we do with these three words in terms of application on Sunday afternoon and Monday morning and Tuesday night? Well, I think I'm increasingly impressed that part of what we have to do is just make this prayer part of the cadence of our own devotional life, reminding ourselves just we we pray it because it is the Lord's Prayer, and some of these words are just perfectly crafted, and we're not going to do better, and we need to say, thy kingdom come, and remind ourselves of what we're doing. But I think we also need to... Find ways to be about heaven's business here and and to use the gifts that he has given us. We are are not particularly good with pronouns other than me, mine, and I. This is thy kingdom come. And and we have to just seriously do the kind of uh, mental gymnastics that, that, that allow us to start focusing our lives differently. To believe, as David stated in the Psalms, that it's better to be a servant, a doorkeeper in the temple of God than to be in the tents of the wicked. It's better to be involved in, in kingdom work even though it's hard and we're not ultimately going to carry the day until he shows up. 
It's better to be about that work than it is to follow our own agenda. Thy kingdom come. I want to invite you to join with me as we end the sermon and begin to prepare our hearts for this communion table by praying the Lord's Prayer with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. At this moment, I will invite those.